0: Welcome to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Erda My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is Episode 8, Dead Man Working, Part 1, The World of the Living Dead. In the last few episodes, as we explored the question, what is work, we did some heavy theological lifting. So for this episode, I thought a change of pace would be in order, one that won't necessarily involve less weighty matters, just a different approach. Initially I had thought to make this Ergosia's first book review episode, and specifically I thought to review the book Dead Man Working by Carl Sederstrom and Peter Fleming, published by Zero Books in 2012. At the time of publication, Cedar Strom was lecturer in human resource management at Cardiff Business School, Cardiff University, while Fleming was professor of work and organisation at Queen Mary College, University of London. Both have written extensively on economics, capitalism, business and society, and I thought reviewing Dead Man Working would provide a useful introduction to some of the critiques of work that exist in the secular world. However, Dead Man Working is such a short book, only 75 pages of text, and its subject matter so compelling that I eventually decided it would make an interesting series in itself, a kind of detailed précis of Sederstrom and Fleming's critique, that in turn would ultimately enable me to respond with a theological reflection to close out the series. So that's exactly what the next few episodes will represent. A detailed summation of Dead Man Working, concluding with a theological reflection. And although I will repeatedly draw attention to the fact, it bears stating now, that in all except the final episode of this series, I will be bringing you my summation of Sederstrom and Fleming's analysis. If you want to read what Sederström and Fleming actually have to say for themselves, I recommend you get your own copy of Dead Man Working. It's a dark and sometimes disturbing read, but I recommend it highly. Sederström and Fleming begin by drawing on the work of the political economist Franco Berardi to describe the landscape of the corporate world as a land of the living dead one in which neoliberal capitalism has become both the dominating paradigm of human life and its most soul-destroying burden. The post-industrial world of modernity is one characterised by conflict, moral fatigue and financial and social atrophy, a world in which human beings are trapped in an existence of pointless and endless labour. This is a world which both suffocates our humanity and from which we desperately long to escape. For we know there is a tsunami coming, a tidal wave of consequences that threaten to sweep us all away. But horrific though this scenario may be, we are faced with an even more devastating possibility that the tsunami may never come, and we will be stuck forever, with our present impossible condition. This notion of work in modernity, as a land of the living dead, taps into pop culture's present obsession with post-apocalyptic themes, which range from ecological disaster to zombie annihilation. Modern post-apocalypticism, as distinct from its Cold War predecessor, is reflective of the fact that in the post-industrial world, work has bloated into an all-consuming totality that has not only colonised the whole of our lives, but has become something from which we are unable to escape and for which no one apparently has any workable alternatives. And we have reached this impasse because for too long we have ignored capitalism's self-referential nature, Whereas most cultures in history have placed ultimate value on sources external to themselves, be it in the form of religious beliefs or shared communal values, capitalism exists only for itself. It is an end in itself and a means to its own end. Consequently, human life in modernity has become trapped in an eternal loop of work and consumption. But this eternal loop has also fragmented life, creating times of escape that with bitter irony become the very justification for continuing the present imprisonment to endless labour. Meaning in life has now been reduced to an individual's capacity to earn enough money so that they can, however temporarily, enter into those times of escape be they holidays, paid entertainment, or some other form of monetized distraction. For Sederstrom and Fleming, the principal avenue through which capitalism has facilitated its self-referential nature is via the phenomenon of biopower. Biopower is the human capacity to be socially, emotionally, and cognitively intelligent, innovative, and resilient. It is the key human attribute which people bring to the realm of waged labour, and yet it is the very thing which corporatized capitalism destroys. In response to this reality, however, the owners of capital have not changed the nature of capitalism, rather they have used its destructive potential to appropriate biopower, in order to not only persuade people to enter into the life-denying realities of work, but to actively want to do so. Corporations use biopower for their own ends by creating internal cultures that act as a simulacrum of real life and that they enforce compliance with these cultures through a regime of pseudo-community creation that typically takes the form of team-building exercises, motivational talks, and architectural design features whose subliminal message is that work is fun and real life inseparable from life at work. By placing the mask of real human life over the life-denying realities of the corporate environment, the creation of workplace cultures is, in effect, capitalism's attempt to continue its control over human existence by colonising what used to belong to life beyond work. Moreover, this move toward life colonisation is also capitalism's attempt to rebrand itself, to distinguish itself from its inhuman Fordian forebears of the early 20th century. No longer the claim runs our workplaces the location of drudgery and oppression, Rather, they are the arena in which human diamondism and creativity are both liberated and fulfilled. This attempt at rebranding is itself a response to the ongoing crisis which capitalism has endured since the emergence of neoliberalism in the 1970s and which in the West has resulted in widespread deindustrialization and the emergence of first the service economy followed in more recent years by the IT data economy and the so-called gig economy of self- and contracted employment. Realising they could no longer organise the workforce along Fordian lines, corporations have now appropriated the maxims of pop culture and daytime confessional television to make workers organise themselves on the corporation's behalf. The consequence, say to Strom and Fleming assert, is that waged labour has become a continuous way of life rather than just one of the many facets of life. This in turn has resulted in a huge upsurge of both unpaid work as well as work performed at home and in what were once purely social spaces. The apparently human culture of work causes us to internalize the old Fordian mantra that the worker's first obligation is to their employer. We have become our own boss, but not in a way that facilitates autonomy or even cooperation. Rather, we have ensured the intrusion of the corporate prerogative into every aspect of human existence. For it is beneath the apparently benign facade of humanized work that there lurks a reality of coercion and humiliation. The internal corporate cultures that colonize human life are not voluntarily entered into. They are mandatorily imposed and become the agreed ethos by which workers' lives are organized both at work and elsewhere. These internalised and enforced cultures are what persuade, or cause workers to agree, to such absurd workplace practices as pyjama days, in which employees wear their pyjamas to work as a fun and morale-building exercise. A similar outcome results from employee-of-the-month schemes, in which those who are thus anointed get to choose the music everyone will have to listen to over the internal PA system, or the food that will be served in the staff canteen, or the comedy mugshots that staff will be required to take of themselves for display on the company notice board or website. Moreover, if you think such practices are demeaning or offensive or just plain irritating, you'd better keep that view to yourself. The last thing you can afford to acquire is a reputation as someone who isn't fun or who doesn't enter into the spirit of the prevailing workplace culture and is thus not a team player. The irony is that the modern corporate workplace has become a workers' society in ways that could never be imagined by state socialism. Work has become an enclosed totality in which we are always at work, and in which value is not created, but is instead captured. Very much in the same way that the land enclosures of the 18th century captured for the benefit of the landed aristocracy the wealth-creating power of property that used to serve entire communities. Humanity's gift of biopower, its very sociability and creativity, has become the platform for its exploitation by the corporation. Because ideas generation and social networking can occur as much or more at home and in other social spaces, corporations extract maximal value from this potential by harnessing this human capacity to corporate prerogatives through every moment of our waking lives. But this shift, this colonisation of life by the corporate culture, is itself reflective of a wider ideological inversion. Prior to the 1970s, images of counterculture and resistance to corporatism were indicative of a left-progressive critique of capitalism and the alienation and disenfranchisement which it produced. Responses to this critique typically took the form of a right-wing defence of corporate capitalism, legitimating it on the basis of its alleged capacity to create wealth and other social goods. But the rise of neoliberalism to global dominance has seen a strange inversion, one in which key left-wing motifs and symbols have been co-opted by corporate capitalism to assert managerial control over human life. As a consequence of this inversion, the domesticated, unidimensional simulacrum of leftist critique has become a commercial symbol used as a selling point for everything from designer fashion products self-imposed submission to corporate managerialism. Rather than suppressing radicalism, neoliberalism has colonised and appropriated what were formerly the sources of capitalist critique. Sederstrom and Fleming point to so-called liberation management as an example of this appropriating trend. Liberation management Claims that success in business comes from unleashing people so that they might be what they already are creative, innovative, free thinking individuals. More to the point, however, this unleashing is to be achieved by corporations harnessing the nonconformist energy of their employees, turning it from a potential disruptor to a wealth generator. Unleashing through harnessing, the Orwellian overtones could not be more explicit. But behind the pop-psycho babble with which liberation management is replete, lurks the ugly reality that micromanagement and authoritarian workplace bullying remain intact, ironically and paradoxically disguised by a workplace culture in which employees are required to speak their minds, to be their authentic selves and have fun at work. Those who try to resist or even dare critique this phony jocularity are vilified as obstructionist or negative, meaning that unlike the honest feedback encouraged by liberation management, this dissenting honesty is targeted for retribution. The seeming contradiction at the heart of liberation management resides in capitalism's capacity to commodify everything, even, or perhaps especially, the symbols of critique and resistance, or human values such as honesty and freedom. Everyone is familiar with the iconic image of Che Guevara the rebel, precisely because it has become transformed by the fashion industry into the very representation of middle-class privilege. This is nothing new. Capitalism did the same with the mass student protests of the late 1960s, as well as with popular discontent with the economic pressures of the late 1970s and early 80s, themselves the product of manipulation by cartels such as OPEC, in order to facilitate the emergence of neoliberalism. In doing so, the proponents of corporatist capitalism appropriated the language of leftist critique to present the facade of a more humanised workplace and system of economic organisation, and at the same time shifted attention toward the subjective ills of work, the gripes every worker has about being at work, and away from the systemic, structural causes of exploitation and control. Sederstrom and Fleming argue that one product of this ideological appropriation and distraction was the emergence of so-called neo-leisure, the blurring of the boundaries between work and non-work. One example is the deployment of architectural design methods geared toward promoting a culture of bohemianism, artistic creativity and chic underground coolness to both encourage and disguise a regime of long and arduous labour. This internal program is often complemented by an external program of supporting progressive social causes, so that the corporation is provided with a positive public image, and employee sentiment is co-opted by giving them a cause to which to belong. By thus appropriating the symbols and language of anti-corporatist critique, the corporate world has created what Sederstrom and Fleming dub the ultimate neoliberal moment. It has created what the political economist Slavoj Žižek calls liberal communism. And we need look no further than the phenomenon of corporate social responsibility to discover what liberal communism looks like. Indeed, despite its popularity and widespread deployment in the corporate world, studies have shown that the most irresponsible corporations are frequently also those who pay the most lip service to CSR principles. Beyond PR cynicism, however, this ideology of care resonates strongly with employees looking to inject meaning into the living death of corporatized work. It becomes a cause to which workers can hitch their moral wagons, aligning genuinely held ethical concerns with destructive business models. Thus, while CSR is deployed to make a difference, in reality nothing changes. The oppressive structures of corporate power remain intact, and the world of the living dead continues onward, seemingly without end or prospect of relief. And on that somewhat grim note, we conclude this episode of Ergasia. In the next episode, we will continue our exploration of dead man working by examining the phenomenon of emotional labour and how this has produced a simulacrum for real life known as the girlfriend effect. That, however, is all for now. Many thanks to everyone who has been listening so far, and to those of you who have supplied comments, feedback, or suggestions. To leave your thoughts on this podcast, please go to the webpage at www.argasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for my next podcast. In the meantime, I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.